Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get yourself a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash sweetstorybro. With over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, man, you're spoiled for choice with something to listen to. So I know what you're going to do as soon as this show has ended. You're going to head over to audibletrial.com slash sweetstorybro and pick yourself up something free today. Now hear this. The following podcast is likely to contain numerous instances of vulgarity or profanity, which some may deem inappropriate. If you're of an overly sensitive disposition, stop listening now. Additionally, the podcast will be filled with numerous spoilers throughout, so if you haven't had an opportunity to read, watch, or enjoy the story prior to this broadcast, please do so, before continuing with this episode of Sweet Story, Bro. Get ready for action! Hey yo, what is up, Story Bros? Welcome back to another episode of Sweet Story Bro, your favorite, I hope, geek critique podcast where we look at the nitty gritty of geek stories, the good, the bad, the geeky, and whether it's worth your time or not, man, because life can be difficult, life can be very busy. And that is the reason why, a quick apology, for the first time ever since launching this show, this episode comes to you a little late, and I do apologize because I've always prided myself on the fact that I've never missed a deadline when I was in the country and able to control it. But things a little bit out of my uh, out of my control, actually, on that a little bit out of my hands took over yesterday, and I was unable to upload this and get it to you the way I wanted to. So I'm sincerely sorry. I do apologize for those who are waiting out and refreshing their feeds for it and stuff. For this show, but fear not, here we are with another episode of Sweet Story Bro, this time looking at, well, you guys follow the Twitter, I'm sure, at Sweet Story Bro, so you know because of the Monday mention, so you've watched this movie, so there's no spoilers, so when I get into the deep analysis, well, you're ready to go for the ride, but for those who aren't aware, we're looking at the Ninja Turtles, the very first movie iteration from 1990. The question, as you story bros know, is always, why did I choose this story? Why did I decide to look at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1990 edition, the original movie, the very first one that came along Friday, 30th of March, 1990? And just to give you a little context, let's blast you back to the past. Some of you guys may not have even been alive when this movie first came out. But let me give you some context. It was a Friday and the sign of Aries. The U.S. president was George H.W. Bush, a Republican. Now, in that special week of March, people in the U.S. were listening to Black Velvet by Alana Miles. Over here in the U.K., Dub Be Good to Me by Beats International, featuring Lindy Layton, was in the top five hits. Cry Baby, directed by John Waters, was one of the most viewed movies released in 1990. While The Born Ultimatum by Robert Ludlum was one of the best-selling books long before it became... The Born series, as we know, with Matt Damon. I hope I've grounded you a little bit in the context of the time now. Because we're going to be talking about the Turtles. 
those four brothers named after Renaissance artists that have changed the comic book world since 1984 when they first debuted. So put that into a little bit of framing as well. The fact that this movie came out six years after the original book first debuted. It's quite a while. But of course, they went from success to success. First, there were the comic books, then the animated series, and the the mega franchise spawning animated series. That huge boom is what caused them to snap up the rights for this movie, to want to push it into production in about 89. The big thing to remember about this, the weirdest thing, is the fact that this is actually an independent movie. This isn't a big blockbuster movie. In fact, it was made for a reasonably small amount, especially compared to today's sort of budgets. It was made for an approximate budget of $13.5 million, and the box office, by the end, $202 million. These guys were worried that they had a stinker on their hands while well, they flipped it, and uh, they, they walked away with an absolute hit and made a sequel a couple, uh, a couple years later. But just because it did well with the, mo- uh, the movies, just because it made bank, because all the kids at the time wanted to see it, myself included, man, I've got fond, not, not this one, but I've got really fond memories of my mom taking me to the cinema when I was young to go see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. And I remember that was specifically because it had Talk and Razor and it had Super Shredder in it. But the big reason for choosing this story, well, for any of you guys who know me on a personal level, and hey, Hopefully, over the course of time, as you've been enjoying these podcasts, you do get a sense of that right now. I'm a big Turtles fan. I don't know. I can't recall how much I've maybe mentioned this or dropped it here and there during the course of the podcast's history, but I'm a big Ninja Turtles fan. I always have been. I always will be. I mean, quite frankly, I wish if I were to have kids or shall I say when I have kids at some point, um, if I want four boys and I want to name them all after Ninja Turtles. So is aware of this. This is not a surprise. So she's listening to this on the off chance you knew that was the plan. But unlike some of the other shows that I enjoyed as a kid that um, a lot of people still have reverence for, things like Ghostbusters, and I'm talking about the cartoon series because the movies still obviously hold up. The cartoon series, the Ghostbusters, you got Thundercats, you got He-Man, another one obviously being the Power Rangers, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. For me, per- and Transformers is another one actually. For me personally, these shows haven't particularly aged well a lot of them were obviously made for toys and things like that and yeah the animated series spun out a whole plethora of of toy franchises and chains and different bullshit sort of you know like the sports figures or the the space figures or whatever you know it's a marketing campaign but there's just something about the turtles throughout just that just always resonated with me as a kid and now later as an adult and I think it's the relationship that they have with each other, the brotherhood bond, the martial arts background, especially now, that resonates with me more than ever now that I'm a practicing jiu-jitsu guy. I just think that out of all the themes that they've explored, there's so much that you can say with the Turtles. If I ever had an opportunity to write for an already established franchise, I would love to write just a short arc for the Ninja Turtles. That would be a dream come true or even be a voice on the TV show. My God, because I'll tell you what, I've watched every iteration of the Turtles except for is it, is it Last Mutation, the one with the um, the suits that they made for Nickelodeon kids. I've yet to see that, but I will. I know it was only one season. Uh, there's a girl turtle called Venus, I think. Like that's a hole in my turtle knowledge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. Don't worry. 
But the new series, the one that started in 2012, if you like the Turtles and you haven't been watching that, get on it. It is great. Yeah, it has ups and it has downs, better seasons, worse seasons, just like any TV show. But ultimately, if you're a Turtles fan, worth your time. But we're here today to discuss one of the first platforms that really springboarded them into a popular consciousness for adults. Because prior to this, it would have been those nerdy comic guys, God bless them, uh, the forefathers for us in 84, because there would have been no animated series without the popularity of the comics, right? Even though you look at it, you can understand from a business perspective why it would have been appealing, why they made the changes they made. But prior to adults having to take their kids who watched this, the animated show to the movies to see it, it probably would have existed for them on sort of the outskirts of their radar. Oh, yeah, this is something my kid watches, whatever. But now they have to take the kids to the movies. They are made to watch it too. And the question became, is there enough there to engage an adult audience? Or is there enough there thematically to elevate it as a movie, as a story, as a viewing experience, as a narrative? And that's what we're going to explore here with this geek critique this time around. I've been really looking forward to talking to you guys about the Turtles. I'm surprised it's taken me so long to do so for the podcast. But without further ado, let's start talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 1990 edition. Director Steve Barron, written by Todd W. Langan and Bobby Herbeck. Let's do this. So the first thing to really mention about the narrative and the story of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, TMNT, I might call it going forward just to save a little bit of time, is the fact that it's an incredibly well-paced kids movie. It's key that I highlight the fact that it's kids because it is ultimately for kids. But kids' movies tend to have to have something happening at all times to engage, to keep the attention, to make sure that their minds don't wander off and they get unruly or distracted or whatever it happens to be. And I think that TMNT managed to do this actually really, really well. Obviously, it's a really different experience going back to this story as a fan and looking at it solely from a narrative perspective, let alone putting it contextually into the idea that, yes, it's a kids' movie, and that's how we have to look at it. We, as an adult... I cannot frame everything and go, cool, well, this doesn't work because I'm an adult. You know, you have to put yourself in the, it's, again, it's a business thing. If I'm writing a kid's movie, I'm not writing for an adult audience necessarily, but you want to hit that sweet spot the way that Pixar does so well and Disney too. You look at my Moana in, uh, critique recently. This is something they did really well where, yeah, again, ultimately, who's the core demographic? It's for kids. But thematically, the, th the messages that it has to say, the way that it presents it, there's enough there for adults to get engaged with. This is something that Pixar has been knocking out of the park and Disney has been doing really well with recently. And I think this movie, TMNT, does a great job of actually keeping the pace going, keeping major events happening at all times to keep the kids engaged. And what's so great about this pacing is the fact that it actually borrows a lot from the first run of original comic books by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, who created Mirage Studios. Theirs is a very punk rock story. I'm a huge fan of it. Not only as a, a pop punk fan myself, again, as you guys know from the Moana episode, I'm sure the How Far I'll Go cover, but I love the mindset of what punk rock is. That sort of try and do it yourself, try and find an audience because there should hopefully be some somewhere you it's all about connecting the audience thread you create something all you got to do is find that fan base it's the exact same thing i'm trying to do with the podcast as i'll be trying to do with my writing as well but they lean heavily on the first run of comic books probably within the remit of maybe the first 10 to 12 
Now, the director, Steve Barron, has this to say. And just as an aside, just in case you might recognize the name, uh, Steve Barron is a, a director behind Coneheads and the music videos for AHA's Take On Me and Billy Jackson's Billy Jean, in case you didn't know. Just check that out for you. You might hear some clicking in the background there. But he has this to say, and this is taken from an article, a really nice sort of um, retrospective look at this movie with the HollywoodReporter.com, and I quote, I didn't want to do something that was bloody. I didn't want to watch that film. Funnily enough, Batman came out at the same time. It was that sort of tone I was already aiming for. The films that I loved, there was a sense of humor, but a sense of peril as well, of real peril, of grounded peril, like something that had repercussions for what you did, but had a wonderful sense of fun with it. I was a big fan of Ghostbusters, end quote. And you can see that influence there, actually. It's so funny to hear him talk about this this concept of grounded peril. I mean, this is something that we've been getting with comic book movies recently, is this idea of grittiness, grounding it in reality, making it feel dirty and grungy and real. And you know what? This is one of the first ones to do it. If it's been a while since you've watched this movie, or if you've never watched this movie, check it out, and you'll see that aesthetic come through the screen pretty much straight away. That is a story choice. And this is the beauty of looking at movies as opposed to just... um. Uh, books, for example, is there are narrative trickeries. There are tips and tricks that you can use to help further your story. And choosing to shoot it gritty, choosing to shoot it dark is one way to express the story you're trying to tell. I mean, Mark Friedman, a gentleman called Mark Friedman, who represents Surge Licensing, when they were first shopping around trying to get the license bought so they could make a movie, he was instrumental in hooking them up with, I think it was the company was called Golden Harvest, which is a, a Hong Kong production company of all places. And uh, he, I, I got this quote from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Ultimate Visual History. This is a huge tome of a coffee table book. It is beautiful. Thea got it for me a couple of Christmases ago, but I've only just cracked it open primarily for the research here, but I fell down a rabbit hole. That thing is amazing. He says this, quote, The film had to be different because you could watch the turtles at home on TV every day. Why is someone going to spend money to see a movie if it's not going to be a better experience? End quote. So you can get the idea straight away that what they wanted to do was take influence, take note, and then go bigger and try and go better. And that comes down to the, you know, the suits grounding in that that real, real world in a way that because it's so much more tactile probably still stands up better compared to the roid turtles that we get of nowadays where they tower seven foot tall and just the crazy big meatheads these turtles were teenagers and they were the appropriate heights for it as well now i mentioned about the fact that it takes influence from the first run of comic books i personally love that it wears its comic book influences and its origins so proudly on its sleeve. It doesn't shy away from the fact that it is based on a comic book. Although for the, a lot of people, a surprising amount of people then and still now, they don't realize that the Turtles are actually based on a run of comic books. You see the comic books done by IDW right now, and you probably think, oh, right on, they've made a comic book because of the success of the movies, blah, 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 or the TV show. Not at all. It all began with that comic book and a punk rock mentality. It's like Northampton, I think it is, or wherever it was. Great ideas. But they, they wear this proudly. And I'm a big 
fan of this because with my writing, this is how I do it too. I take influence. I take inspiration. I try to tweak it or incorporate it as an homage. And when you take influence like that and you're inspired by so many different people and then you jam it all together, at some point, hopefully, you should be able to create something unique, something new, but based off of where you came from. You can thread that back. You can thread back the influence and the inspiration you took all the way through your life. And the fact that they didn't shy away, I think, needs to be applauded, quite frankly, because it could have could have been so easy to look at the TV show and try to ape that, just to go, cool, just just copy this, you know, uh, mundane, brain-dead storylines in some places. And don't get me wrong, I have a, an affinity, as I already spoke about at the top, for the original cartoon show. It's not bad, and I think it has aged pretty well in places, um, certainly not in other places, that much is true. But this movie, this movie has aged better because of this tactile environment, because of the real uh, turtles, because of the story they're trying to tell, and the fact it's taken from the original run. I've got a quote from Bobby Herbeck, the screenwriter of this show, of of this movie, sorry. And again, this is taken from that retrospective with thehollywoodreporter.com. He says this, and I quote, It was six or eight weeks before Eastman and Laird signed off on the script. Never saw two guys who disagreed so much. It got to the point where, when I met with them, I could tell by their body language and their eyes. If Peter was looking down at the floor, I would just go right into, what didn't you like, Peter? Peter, from the beginning, he didn't think much of me as a writer. I was a Hollywood type, infringing on his artistic chops and characters, end quote. It's a nice idea here that they're precious over their characters. Obviously, I'm not reviewing the comic books here or the original origin stories of that, but it's nice to see, A, the content creators care so much about what's happening with their, their their beloved property, and B, the production company actually giving a shit about that. Because so many times now, they change things up with properties, and it's, it's why the slew of older superhero movies didn't work, is because they were taking liberties with the source material. You see, from maybe X-Men onwards, and then it really hits into second gear with Spider-Man and so forth, the closer that they started to become to the source material, the, the the tighter they honed this audience and they hired people who cared about these characters from the off as opposed to some hack director who didn't know anything about it, the better the quality of the story, the better the quality of the end product. And what's wonderful is that you can trace this all the way to this 1990 movie. It's just that not a lot of people tend to look at it that way. Co-creator Kevin Eastman has this to say on Steve Barron. And again, this is taken from the ultimate visual history. If you're a Turtles fan, well worth picking up. Quote, at one of our first story meetings, he'd gone through one of the 400-page collections that first comics had published and had placed post-it notes on issue one, the Leonardo one-shot, and issues 10 and 11. And he said... The whole movie's right there with the origins, Shredder, April O'Neil, Casey Jones. And we said, you got it. End quote. You got it. You get it. Like, you get what we're trying to do. You get what we were trying to accomplish. You get the story. You get it. And as a content creator, at that moment in time, it must fill you with joy to know that somebody understands the core of what you're trying to do. The story you're trying to tell. And at that point... At that exact moment, it crystallizes that this guy's going to do a good job. It must have felt amazing because 
a property like this, you can imagine they would have been particularly precious over. And you would understand. I mean, as a, as a weird sort of madcap thought, ever since the original cartoon series, there's been some sort of turtle show on TV almost nonstop in some iteration, whether it was the original series running through, I think, to 96, and then you had the Next Mutation stuff going on, then the 03 series started, that ended, and a few years later, it was... Uh, the 2012 series, the turtles have been in the popular, uh, have been in pop culture and in the public eye pretty much nonstop since the first animated series. That is, that is a property. That is an idea that stands the test of time. And it does it because it has good themes. It does it because it has good characters. It does it because it has relatability. It does it because it has good stories to tell. Now, I've already mentioned about the pacing being incredibly sharp and honed, especially for a kid's movie. And this is highlighted by the fact that every major plot beat, like every major thing that happens in the movie to push the story perpetually forward, is easily threaded together nicely. And this is why it matters from a story writing perspective. It gives logic and progression to how the story organically unfolds. Nothing feels particularly forced. Nothing feels as though it was crowbarred in for the sake of it. And you can thread everything through. So from the very last scene, you can then retroactively go backwards and essentially reverse engineer the story to the very first scene. Everything flows perfectly. And if you don't believe me, hey, check out that story. Get it via the Amazon link on the website. Uh, if you haven't got it already, and scope it. Because this is a great example. If you're looking for stories that are able to be narratively tight and honed, that are well-written and threaded through properly, this is a, actually a really good example of one. And it's weird because I've never really heard of Bobby Herbeck outside of this. I'll be honest, I, I can't even recall if I've ever seen anything else that he's done. <laughs> that's the honest truth of it. And that's not a knock to him. If anything, it's a credit that he was able to create something so solid with this franchise straight out of the box. But that's just good writing, being able to plot it through. You take one element out, and the entire thing becomes unsteady. Take two elements out, even more, it's just Jenga, dude, until that whole tower comes down. But the way they have it, it's very solid. It's very solid, and it's impressive. If I'm being perfectly honest with you, like I say, if you are a writer and you are looking for something to analyze, well, firstly, you're in the right place because this critique is doing it for you. But if you want to experience it, check out this movie again. But the, the movie and the story at times can only be as good as the characters that are in it because without the characters, without peril, without the drama, without investment, what story is there? The two go hand in hand. They have to. They have to intertwine to create a full narrative whole. And I'm happy to report that the characters are pr pretty much on point, except perhaps, in my humble opinion, Donatello. The, the performance of Donatello always struck me as being a little bit odd, a little bit different, aloof and generic compared to the others. The others all have pretty defined personalities, and then you have Donnie, who's just kind of there, and he doesn't even have his trademark um, good with machines, loves machines sort of vibe in the way he does in every other iteration of the Ninja Turtles. It's there. He helps Casey with the truck and things like that. But overall, he just kind of feels like a there. And it, it's always really graded me. And 
t- that's my major takeaway from the character's perspective of the four t- core turtles from this most recent watch through. Now, of course, the Raphael Leonardo feud takes center stage as always. In every major version of the turtles, there's always this core component, this rivalry that exists between them where Leo is the leader and Raphael, the hothead, believes that he should be the one to lead, even though the very fact that he has so much to learn and the fact that he gets so frustrated and so angry so easily will forever mean that he will not be a competent leader in the way that Leonardo can be. I've always loved, I've always loved this rivalry that exists between them. I've always been a huge huge fan of it and it leads to one of the most emotionally impactful moments that happens in this movie between the two of them and that's when they have their big bust up Raphael's in a coma knocked unconscious they're they're in the farmhouse and he's in the the bathtub although I can help but laugh because when they cut to it and he's just like he's kind of like face down hanging out of the bathtub they didn't even put him in nicely this it really looks like they just got there and just dumped him in a bathtub but Leo has a vigilant watch. He stays to make sure he's okay. And it's heightened all the more because you know that the last words between them were so bitter and angry. And so when he wakes up and they embrace and he's just so happy that Raphael's okay and it highlights a you know brother's fight. No matter what happens though, they will always be brothers. They will always have each other. And that always gets me. I love that element. I love their relationship. And is captured so wonderfully in this movie. And it is definitely one of the highlights of this flick, of this narrative that they tell. I've got a couple quotes here from the actors that are actually inside of the suits, inside of the sunsuits, being the turtles, to highlight the sort of rigorous, vigorous work that they had to do in order to act as them and how their physical performance affected the story because of course that's what the actors naturally bring to the table now there's an actor called michelin sisti i think that's how you say the name i'm not 100 percent. i apologize michelin or michelin i, I really don't know he, he played michelangelo and these are both from the hollywoodreporter.com incidentally quote the first scene i did with michelangelo when we were waiting for the pizza in the sewer That's all we did that day. It was just us sitting there and putting together all that choreography, head movements, eye contact, and taking a breath. Each turtle has two puppeteers, one moving the eyes, one moving the mouth, and you're timing everything together. Six people trying to make this very subtle, delicate scene work and look believable, end quote. That's the kind of spread of work that went into it, the amount of manpower and attention to detail to make it look good to make it look like it could be real in order to tell the story there was a huge amount of work not only from a um, physical and labor standpoint but also from a technological and innovation standpoint too because just in case you weren't aware the turtles and all the suits and the animatronics were made by jim henson he of muppet fame and it was this amazing mixture this cross-section of technology and creativity that led to the turtles being so fully realized and created. Another actor, Josh Pice, who played Raphael Pace, P-A-I-S, I apologize, guys. He had this to say, quote, The first thing we shot might have been when you first see the turtles walking through the sewer and coming into where they live. Everything that could go wrong went 
wrong. There was water on the ground and we realized the latex was very slippery. We'd be going along and one of us would wipe out. That opening sequence took about eight or nine hours. Things would break down. Those frustrations helped me to really find a way to physicalize Raphael's anger, his fury. The whole situation, I just used it to create this guy, end quote. That's taking a, a real negative and flipping into a positive, Josh. Well done you, man, for channeling that. And instead of just being angry at the situation, which anybody could have understood and, and been sympathetic to, you decided to use it in order to channel through Raphael's anger. And it does a great job. I mean, again, this is this is storytelling. This is taking real-life experiences, taking what you know, and then outputting it into something new. But what a positive message that is as a whole. In order to try and capture that character, you use that negative and you spin it into something you use, material you can uh, capitalize on. Now, time and again, I've mentioned the themes of the movie, the themes of the Turtles, sorry, as a whole. And this is by far the strongest element to this movie is the way that it captures the brotherhood elements that exist between all four of the Turtles as well as their relationship to Splinter because Splinter is a very caring parent despite his obvious puppetry limitations. You watch this now, you see how little he moves, how, how little he does, and when he does move, he's still so rigid and that's not their fault per se. That's what they were capable of achieving. And it's still a technical marvel what they were able to achieve. But it's this idea, this core concept of fathers and sons. This idea of relationships, paternal relationships, fraternal relationships. It's, it's Apart from April O'Neil, there's no real women in this story. And this isn't a representation thing. It's some stories are grounded in in this, in brotherhood, some stories are grounded in brotherhood and fatherhood, and this just happens to be one of them. It's very clever storytelling that they use to get around, you know, Splinter's movements and things like that. But the father-son theme is prevalent throughout. It's it's the core driving concept in this movie, and it, it exists in pretty much every major relationship that is shown on screen. And this is through from Splinter and the Turtles naturally. Down to that reprobate Danny and his father Charles. And, you know, perhaps even touch upon Casey Jones and the lack of his parental influence, perhaps. Even though he's obviously still come out. He's a hard-nosed, rough-around-the-edges, nice guy. He's a tough guy, but he's a nice guy, as we know. He wouldn't be going out as a vigilante beating up thugs if he wasn't. He'd be one of the thugs if he wasn't. And, of course, one of the major ones, we talk about the Splinter uh, and the Turtles. We talk about Danny and Charles. Of course, you have this weird Fagan-esque relationship that exists between Shredder and all the Lost Boys that he's hiring, all these New York youths, in order to become members of the Foot Clan, which, if you really think about it as a story point, makes no sense at all because these kids don't know anything about martial arts. There's no way that the turnaround time in training relates to what we're seeing on screen where – He'll join the army. He'll join the clan, and then, like in a couple of weeks, become really good at martial arts. That's just ridiculous. Again, you got to frame it as a kids' show, as a kids' movie. That's what you got to do. It's what you got to do in order to accept it. It's like going to a Transformers movie right now and then getting pissed that it wasn't fucking Othello. But this Fagan-esque Pied Piper storyline 
ties into the themes of fatherhood because Danny has his issues with Charles. Even though, in, in all honesty, Charles comes across as a pretty competent parent. He comes across as hardworking. He's got a good job, a good salary. He's looking out for his son. He's giving him the latest Walkman and stuff like that. Danny just seems to be going through a teenage petulance where he just wants to rebel against everything. So I think this is less on Charles. He doesn't come across as a bad father. Danny just comes across as a bad son who later regrets the moral choices that he's been making. Bobby Herbeck has this to say, and this is taken from a website, TeenageMutantNinjaTurtles.com, which incidentally is not the official website but a fan site. He says this, quote, The biggest challenge in writing the first Turtles movie was trying to write something that appealed to both the kids and the adults that would be taking them to see the movie. I think that the ideas about friendship and loyalty in the first movie still really resonate with those that saw the film when it was released, and that's why it is still considered to be the best of the Turtles films. End quote. I can't really argue with that. If it's something that he went into with the purpose of writing into the script, which clearly when you want to write something, you have something to say. Sometimes themes and ideas materialize in a way that you never really would have thought they would have done. I've certainly experienced that before. When you write something, you go back, you go, oh, I guess I had something to say about that, but I wasn't actively aware. Subconscious works in a funny way like that. But when it comes to a movie, when it comes to a script, a story for a script, there are so many cooks in the kitchen that I imagine a lot of people help to mold this. Uh, not least of all the actual co-creators Eastman and Laird themselves because this is a core tenement of the comic books. It's one of the major things that makes it so appealing. And it's something that they were able to take and put into the movie with incredible results. Fantastic results. But it's not all good. First, I talk about the good, the things I liked. Now it's time to talk about the things I wasn't so hot on. These are, of course, just my personal opinions. Just as a little disclaimer right now before we get into it on a deeper level. But the issues I did have with it, I, I, I do have issue with. Obviously, else I wouldn't be listing it here. But these stick in my craw in a way that I couldn't just ignore. And it runs the remit of characterization to storytelling technique. So strap in story bros, have a sip of that coffee, have a sip of that water or whatever it is you're drinking. And let's talk about some of the cons of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the 1990 edition. The enemies, the bad guys, the antagonists. Shredder is underdeveloped completely as an enemy. Yet we're still expected to invest in him as the big bad, despite his incredibly limited screen time. Now, you can do a lot if you're doing it right with limited screen time in order to make somebody come across as really intimidating, make somebody come across as a real threat. And they try to do that. And yeah, he comes across as intimidating in the scenes that he's in. He's looking all menacing and whatnot in his sharp armor and what he's doing and how he's acting. But ultimately, he's still very paintbrushed. He's not gone into in any real depth what we know about him is all through the turtles and through splinters story about him which is one of my favorite ways to get characterization across as longtime listeners of the show know but there's there's just something about the way he's presented here he's not weak he doesn't come across as weak he's just coming across as one-dimensional and that is that is a sin for any story because he he's painted to be a very, very straightforward, I'm a bad guy. 
He doesn't really have any true depth. And the best thing about the best bad guys is that they don't think that they're bad guys. And I didn't really get that vibe from this version of Orokusaki or the Shredder. I mean, on that, April as well has a lot of brushstroke development. And given that she is their contact with the human world, part Casey Jones, given that she is the only major female character in this movie, given how important that role actually is, it's very disappointing to see how little they do with it. She owns the second time around store, which she kind of explains away in a very cavalier attitude about how it was her father's and how she only keeps it open part time because, well, actually, this ties into the theme earlier. Now that I think about it, she talks about she keeps it open in order to remember her father to a degree or something to that effect. Again, fathers and their relationships with their children. <laughs> That's not, I didn't even realize that at the time. That's great. Um so she owns a second time around store. She has this huge country home that's like verging on a mansion out in the country. And she, I'll be honest, she seems to come from money. Her family, the O'Neills, seem to be pretty like well looked after monetarily and financially. So why does she seem to be struggling so much? She doesn't seem happy in her job. She has an apartment. I'll be honest, though, the apartment does seem to be pretty big. She has a lot of room there, but she seems to be she's she's constantly shown to be struggling. Like she's having a hard time of it, and I don't really see that. I don't really see that in her character, and it seems unjust for them to want that of her, a struggling working woman who comes from money who doesn't need to struggle. That's the impression I got. You look at the evidence again. Good job as a reporter. Nice, well-sized apartment in New York City that she lives in by herself, above a store she runs part time, an antique store, and she has a huge country home to go to if she ever wanted to, which she does with the turtles when things go south and they have to flee the city because of the Foot Clan and Shredder. Not too bad. So why is she painted the way she is? Why is she painted as a victim? Um, somebody who's struggling in life. Never really got that. Now, from a storytelling standpoint, from an actual narrative and writing standpoint now, we're going to look at this, this next issue I had. Movies fall into a three-act structure. All right, real crash course. Movies throw... Um, all fall into a three-act structure unless you're doing something particularly artistic or purposely trying to buck that, that trend, that given accepted writing style. And every time you come to an end of an act, a major plot point needs to happen that then has minor resolution before it throws our heroes into the next portion of the story. Forward momentum constantly, never just treading water. With that in mind, there's a really odd placement of the second-act turn known as the, the point of no return or no hope turn as well, where everything seems lost. Our heroes are at their lowest point. What can they possibly do to rally, to come back? How could they win this? And then in the third act, of course, we get, um, there's normally a third act twist, a little bit more buildup, final battle, and then resolution. In this movie, the flick shifts into the third act, it feels like it shifts into the third act after their excursion to Northampton where they recover. The major point of loss is practically midway through the actual movie, which bucks that regular three-act structure I was talking about. 
when they lose, when April's apartment is set on fire, when Raphael goes into the coma, when they get their butts kicked by Shredder and they have to run away from New York City and Splinter is taken, that's all about halfway through the movie. And their return is at the end of Act 2. They have to recover. They use they essentially use the entirety of the second half of the uh, second act as a montage, a long montage for them to find themselves, for them to root themselves, to figure out who they are potentially without Splinter, for them to contact Splinter spiritually and then get back on track to find themselves again. And that's a really weird way to do it because then the entire third act, there's no need for any more buildup because they've spent that time building it up and then boom, there you go. Here it is. Final Act Showdown, which extends to Sam Rockwell in a blink and you'll sort of miss him. Foot Clan lead boy. <laughs> really weird <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, it was just odd. It doesn't break the movie. If anything, it makes it very interesting and kind of relishes its indie roots because it's not afraid to do something slightly different. But it just – because of that, we're conditioned as an audience to know when things are sort of happening, to know like, cool, so this is happening here. So there's maybe approximately 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes left of the movie, blah, 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 all on an almost subconscious level unless you're aware of it, right? If you're aware of it, you know how to plot a movie pretty much throughout. With this, because of the placement, maybe it feels a little longer, Maybe the pacing feels off to you because of it. It didn't to me. Again, I liked it personally, but it just struck me as odd. But as I say, by no means does it break the movie. At no means does it destroy the story. Mm -mm. No, probably the biggest problem I had from a narrative standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, which this whole show is about, as you guys know, is the origin story itself with Splinter aping Yoshi's actions in order to learn ninjutsu. This is actually the way it's done in the original comic books, but I'm going to go on a limb here and and say I've, I've never been a huge fan of that. I've never been a huge fan of that as the origin story in comparison to the original 80s cartoon origin. And this is rich because... I think they actually did it better. I think the way that they did it made more sense with the mutagen and if a human touches the mutagen and an animal touches the mutagen because of the DNA that was last on them, they form into that version of a mutant. That's why the teenagers, they were owned by a little boy. The little boy drops the turtles. Next thing you know, blah, blah, blah. Hamato Yoshi owns a rat. He handles the rat, handles the mutagen. There you go. Personality traits and, and DNA, you know, fuses together. I've always kind of enjoyed that version of it more. But again, that last point is purely personal. You may disagree. You may love it. And you may love the way that they brought it from page to screen. For me, it always kind of stuck in my craw. I was never a fan of this version of the origin. But that's about it, man. Honestly, that's that's all the issues I have. A couple characterization issues and an odd placement of the second act turn. But I overall... I just really enjoyed revisiting this story that I hold so dear to my heart because Thea surprised me one time. We went to the Prince Charles Cinema in London. If you guys are ever in London and you want to go to an amazing sort of like non-mainstream, different indie sort of cinema, it's just off of Leicester Square. They did a night where you could see TMNT2, Secret of the Ooze, with a free beer and slice of pizza. She surprised me that one night, and it was a great night of really hot screening, like a small screen, and the aircon wasn't on. If they have aircon at all, I don't know. 
So she's seen number two. Now she's seen number one, which means there's only one more she needs to see in terms of the original 90s movies, guys. Yeah, it's the Turtles in Time one. That'll be that'll be an interesting sell. I'll let you guys know how it goes. But allow me my final thoughts. Allow me my outro to this critique. Okay. Now, as a lifelong Ninja Turtles fan, coming back to rewatch this movie with the intention of critically analyzing it was an interesting exercise. I mentioned this at the very, very top. To look at it solely from a story critique standpoint removing myself from my love of the characters, its punk rock origins, and history with the movie and its storied franchise in order to simply review its writing and storytelling techniques offered me a uniquely different experience, made all the better because, as I said, I was making my girlfriend watch it for the very first time. There's going to be some minor issues with a modern audience looking back at this 1990 throwback, but even though there were some elements that had clearly aged, I'm amazed at how great so much of this movie still looks. Much like the major... Bear with me here. My madness makes sense, as it always does, hopefully. Much like the Matrix, because they are shooting almost all of it in camera, the general aesthetic of the movie has actually aged really well. There's a magic to Marvel at with the perfect synergy that they've been able to create between actor, puppeteer, animatronic motion, martial artist fusion that stays the test of time. And for 1990, for 1990, I can only imagine how revolutionary this kind of technology was in order to push cinematic storytelling even further. There are, at times, an odd discordant tone that is created. The grungy, dirty look of the movie is offset by the character's often overtly goofy antics. Consider the constant joking as April's store and home burn down around them. They're constantly quipping and making fun of the fact that she's fucking losing everything. Not Well, not about it, but just they're making fun of their opponents. And almost the situation, really. Also consider the Fagan-esque arc that Shredder has recruiting boys as foot soldiers in that run-down warehouse. There are many odd chords struck throughout that somehow work. Somehow work. Probably because of the story's insistence to consistently use them. If it ever deviated, it may all fall apart. The fact that it stays the course and is willing to stick to them throughout is what helps make it work. This grittiness comes from one of my favorite elements of this story. It's unabashed adulation of the source material. It couldn't have the bloodshed of the original comics, but the tone, that aesthetic, was undeniably present in every frame. And it was something the entire team were clearly gunning for and were particularly proud of, especially when you consider Eastman and Laird's close involvement. They even try to literally capture from page to screen the Turtles' original origin story, which, as an aside and I've just mentioned, I've never been a particular fan of. When you take this as a solid foundation to build from, again, all taken directly from the comic book, you've got yourself a solid, thematically strong story about brotherhood, belonging, and yes, even fatherhood, which is touched upon even with Shredder's incredibly watered-down paintbrush-stroke-villain. And therein lies the story's greatest weakness. Not, not just Shredder, but every character that isn't a major protagonist. And this extends to the Turtles, Splinter, maybe April, and maybe even Casey. They only get a vague, 
unsatisfying one dimension to them. Shredder, his right hand man Tatsu, Brat Danny, Charles. The list goes on, but but Shredder? His screen time allows him to be intimidating, sure. But past that, mm, not much going on. This and the incongruent story beat placement are the only real major gripes that I have with this story. It's not like every other element sings. It's not like every other element is perfect. It's just that every other part that comprises its whole fits together so well. The themes, the relationship between each of the turtles and their subsequent relationship with Splinter, where they fit in the world, who they are, etc. What could have been a lazy cash grab movie surfing off the wave of a huge franchise instead decided to become something no audience member at the time could have seen coming? An independent movie that had respect for its source material and had something to say. In between all the teenage buzzwords of the day, you know, bossa nova, really? Okay, whatever. In between that, the Domino's promotion and rubber-faced animatronics lies a story about brothers and fathers, about revenge and forgiveness, about change and acceptance. It just happens to be a kid's movie that stars four foam-padded Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and a giant rat who makes a funny. I'll leave you with this quote by Kevin Eastman once more. And this is taken from a 2015 article, just to date it, with thehollywoodreporter.com. And I quote, For an independent film, it was beyond our wildest hopes. We liked the final movie, and we hoped people would like it, and the fact it did as well as it did was fantastic. Of all the versions of Turtles that have been optioned over the past 30 years now, and certainly in the entertainment arena, the first movie stands out as our hands-down favorite version. End quote. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1990 original movie, is officially too sweet. And that's going to do it for this episode of Sweet Story, bro. This geek critique is done, my friends. Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. And if you found this show because you're a Ninja Turtles fan and you have never checked out any of the previous episodes, please check them out. There's a whole plethora of stuff to choose from. Hopefully you find something that you like or another story that you'd like to hear my thoughts on. But did you agree or disagree with some of my points? What did you think? Is, is there something that you want to tell me about that maybe I overlooked or, or didn't go into too much detail about? Don't hesitate to get in contact and let me know. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, email, wherever you want, I am available. And all those links, all those social media links are available at SweetStoryBro.com. SweetStoryBro.com. Twitter, the easiest, quickest way to get through to me is simply at SweetStoryBro. Don't hesitate. Get in contact. Let's talk about the turtles, man. I can't think of anything more fun to do. Let's talk about the turtles. And if you want to check out the story yourself, if you've listened to this geek critique and you are interested in watching it but don't own it or you've never watched it before and you want to check it out, get the movie. And you can do it via sweetstorybear.com, you know. Check out that Amazon link at the very top of the page. Click on it. It will take you through to Amazon, and then you can buy the movie. Why would you want to do this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it helps the show. If you buy the movie through the podcast link on the website, a small percentage comes back to the podcast that I can then funnel into it. Server costs, new equipment, things like this, man. Costs money. 
you guys help me out. You guys help me out so much every time you do your shopping through that Amazon link. You are the best story, bros. Thank you. And I'll tell you what, if you liked this episode, if you liked my thoughts on the Ninja Turtles, if you liked <laughs> my geek critique, the good, the bad of this story and the writing techniques that they use to tell us this story, the way I analyze it, why not leave a tip? A couple of bucks, maybe less than a cup of coffee or whatever it happens to be. If those Twitch guys can do it, if those guys streaming video games can do it, or if the, that barista down the road, you know, Here's your coffee, cool. Here's like 50p as a tip, whatever. If you're giving tips for them, why not here too? The research that goes into it, the thought process, the breakdown, the critical analysis. If you like what I'm doing, please, a tip is most greatly, greatly appreciated. And it's super easy to do. Two ways to do it. First, you can hit up sweetstorybro.com. There's a donate button right at the top. Super easy, sweetstorybro.com. Or you can hit up paypal.me slash sweetstorybro. Paypal.me slash sweetstorybro. Hey, man, if you thought this episode was worth a buck, I'd really appreciate it. Really, really. Hand on heart. Hand on heart appreciated. Thank you. Now, be sure to share the show with your story-loving friends as well. Share the love. Spread the conversation. The Ninja Turtles community is a great community. And if you are hearing this and you want other people to check it out, share it with them. I would love to know what the community thinks about my thoughts. So being able to reach out and talk with you guys about this would be a lot of fun for me. So don't hesitate. If you're a Team and T fan, if you enjoyed this story, reach out. So until next time, be sure to keep your eyes on Twitter for the Monday mention. Now, if you are new, just as a really quick, quick breakdown, this show comes out bi-weekly. Every other Monday when there's not a show, I will put up the story that will be reviewed in the next episode. That way you can read, watch, play, or just enjoy the story prior to the episode coming out so there's no spoilers. Some people care. Others don't. But that's just your little caveat. That's your little disclaimer right there for you. Check out the Monday Mention. Be sure to know what the story is. And then come back and download it. All right? Subscribe. Subscribe via iTunes. Subscribe via SoundCloud. However you want to do it. Just get this podcast in a yaza. Super easy. Subscribe. And then it downloads like a little present every other week to your podcast listening device of choice. Now, I'll leave you now with this last message as I do every episode. Life can be difficult. Life can be hard. It can be a grind at times. So take a little time out to treat yourself. Whether it is reading a book that you've been meaning to get to or finally watching that movie you've been putting off or opening and putting in a game disc and letting yourself get transported to a different world man take the time take the time and go enjoy some stories i'm out